I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Icy Sedgwick, author and host of Fabulous Folklore Podcast. Her books include Gothic Dissections in Film and Literature, The Body in Parts, as well as Gothic Horror and Fantasy Novels, including Harbingers, Dark Tales of Speculative Fiction, The Stolen Ghosts, and The Necromancer's Rogue. She's working on a PhD exploring the representation of the haunted house in contemporary Hollywood horror films. You can follow her at Icy Sedgwick at Instagram and Twitter, and also find links to all of her work on her website, icysedgwick.com. That's I C Y S E D G. W-I-C-K and visit her at Patreon patreon.com forward slash Icy Sedgwick On Sunday, November 21st she will be presenting The Face of Fear Faces in Gothic Horror Films as part of our Psychoanalysis Art and the Occult series at Morbid Anatomy Museum online. Her talk will be at 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, which is 7 p.m. in the UK and 8 p.m. Central European Time. To register, visit the Morbid Anatomy events page at morbidanatomy.org slash events or visit Psychoanalysis Art and the Occult website, psychartcult.org. That's P-S-Y-C-H-A-R-T-C-U-L-T dot org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, from Tripart Books 2019. For more information, you can visit our publisher's website, tripart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa 23 Carl that's V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3 C-A-R-L your support is very appreciated thank you so much for supporting rendering unconscious podcast and all of my other creative endeavors I see. I'm so happy to have you here, and I'm so excited for your Morbid Anatomy event coming up on Sunday, November 21st. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, And you said it's pulled from a book you're doing. Would you love to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it was um, a book that I wrote with my uh, former PhD supervisor, actually, and it was all about how 
individual body parts are considered gothic within horror films and literature. And that may sound a bit weird because there's loads of criticism about the body itself as gothic, but not individual parts. So um, it's called, oh, I always get the title the wrong way around. I'm sure it's gothic dissections, a body and parts in literature and film. Mm. At least I've, I'm pretty sure that it's definitely gothic dissections. And it um, and we divided the body up into, as you might imagine, sort of sections, and then some of them got grouped together. So, for example, we'll put like the tongue, mouth, and lips together as one chapter, and because it was difficult to talk about them individually without mentioning the other. And then, following that, we then looked at films and novels where individual body parts are like really important. So, a really obvious example would be something like The Telltale Heart by Poe. So that went in the heart chapter um, or the film that I was in the, the chapter about eyes and so on. And uh, so I started off with the chapter on heads and faces. And then that was where I drew the content of the talk from. But actually, I've dropped kind of all the stuff on the head and I've just chosen to focus on the face because it's actually there was so much more that I could actually have said in the chapter. But obviously, due to, due to space constraints. I sort of took what was there and then kind of ran with it to sort of create this longer talk that's much more of a deep dive into how the face appears in horror films. That's so fascinating. Um, yeah, it's amazing. And I never thought about that, the face and different parts of the body and how they're used in film and literature. Yeah, and I think it's quite funny because once you start looking for them, you find them everywhere and you're like, mm. oh, how on earth do we sort of cut this down? I mean... We got to the end of the book and realised that there are certain body parts, like the liver, for example, that we haven't even covered. Because there's only so much you can obviously fit into a book with a word count. So we, um, I think we're largely focused on, for horror in particular, things like the skin had to have a chapter because it's a, a, obviously it's, it's used quite a lot. And, uh, and I think that's where like, the hands get an entire chapter because you know, there's loads of stories about like severed hands with, with a, a mind of their own and so on. So there was certain chapters ended up with loads and loads and loads of stuff. And then other ones, it was a bit more like, oh, this is going to get a bit more obscure. But it was really interesting putting it together to see how some of these things about these sort of like body parts and so on ended up spilling out into, into sort of, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it, but it kind of became, you, you weren't necessarily solely looking at just what you would consider like a gothic film so for example um I've got the uterus chapter so um we're talking about the uterus as like a, a concept as well as an actual body part and that's why we ended up getting alien and prometheus in there mm. prometheus is a slightly more obvious one but it was just really cool being able to bring sci-fi in as well so it's not just oh we're only going to stick to horror it was like oh hang on these things are actually a little bit more widely dispersed than we thought that's amazing. So this book is not yet out yet. Is it coming out? I need this book. <laughs> oh, no, it's out already. It, uh, it, it's out with Palgrave. Um, it actually came out in about 2017, I think. Um, and But I kind of like to give it a little bit of a nudge every now and then because there's so many academic books coming out, particularly in Gothic studies, that I think it's quite difficult to keep up with all of them. And uh so that was where, um, when I thought, oh, I've got the chance to to talk about it again, and I thought I will, because I do think it's a, it's a different way of looking at these films and, and literature and so on, rather than just focusing on some of the more typical approaches. This is kind of a nice supplementary way of doing it. 
Yeah, this is amazing. No, I'm, I will be ordering this book as soon as we hang up. <laughs> awesome. And as I mentioned before we were recording, I signed up for your newsletter and I've been enjoying everything so much and your stories and your books and uh, the folklore, of course. Everything's just so fantastic and right up my alley. I just love what you do. Well, that was what was really funny doing the Body Parts book, actually, because this it, I sort of started... Um, I started working on that before I started doing my folklore podcast. And I think, I mean, I've been interested in folklore for, well, pretty much since I was a kid, but it was really funny. I kept looking up sort of, you know, uh, heads and, and faces, for example, for this chapter. And then I was finding loads of folklore about them. And then I was, but then I couldn't put it in the book because it wasn't necessarily relevant to the book because obviously it wasn't specifically within the context that we were talking about. And I was like, mm. oh man, this stuff's really interesting. So it's quite funny how, I've then been able to go back and actually look at some of these things. Uh, I mean, I wrote an article for Folklore Thursday's website about like the skeleton in folklore because I had the bones chapter. So I'm mm. like, well, there's loads of really interesting stuff that didn't make it into the book. I'll find a home for it somewhere. And uh, so, yeah, it, it's funny how I think there's quite a nice correlation really between like body parts and folklore because there's loads of weird medicinal remedies that involve really peculiar ingredients and sometimes it can include things like body parts in general so it's it's quite good to sort of be able to bring the two sort of like areas of interest that I've got together yeah and how they feed off of one another and I love how the podcasts are these like bite-sized uh musings so that you can kind of listen to them like sometimes I'll listen to one in between pages when I have 15 minutes and be like oh throw on a I see <laughs> <laughs> It was funny because it was kind of an accident how they ended up that length because I'd been writing the blog posts oh since about I think that I might have started doing the blog posts in about two the back end of 2017 possibly and I'd and obviously I got to the point where I had loads of blog posts and this marketer had said oh well you know once you get to a certain point you should start doing a different content format and I thought well you know what I'll do audio versions because then that way it makes them a bit more accessible so people don't have to rely on say screen readers or whatever to to consume the content you know they can I'll 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 read it to them so I, I don't quite read it obviously but I'll deliver the content as an audio format and then I was just embedding the audio versions in the blog posts and then just for a laugh I decided to upload the RSS feed to iTunes and then I got an email. I'm like, oh, your podcast is now live. And I'm like, oh, wow, I now have a podcast. I have a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and it was really funny because just the length of the blog posts meant that the episodes ended up being somewhere around the 15 minute mark. And I thought, well, I'll just stick with that then because people seem to quite like it. And it obviously, and I mean, even then the amount of research that's required for a blog post is 15 minutes long is sometimes it can be quite, amazing how much actually ends up going into it but I think I've had people telling us that you know they listen when they're walking the dog or they're washing the car or sometimes people save them up and they'll listen to three or four if they've got a longer trip like car ride or something and I think it's because there's so many sort of really excellent podcasts that are like an hour or longer per episode I think it's it sort of makes it not a nice change but it's nice to have an alternative so that there's a slightly shorter one as well um, and I think because there's so many podcasts that people will want to listen to, you sort of feel like, well, at least this way, it's not as much of an investment of time to get a nice like starter or introduction 
to a a topic you can at least then you know listen to that and then if you want a deeper dive then obviously there's longer podcasts available as well yeah and it's good to be able to get I mean a lot of these folklore you know they are kind of just scenes or or shorter stories um as well so I and I also feel like lately I mean at least for me for, for us people who are a little bit before the generation of growing up with the internet you know I'm really still not used to reading things on uh, on the computer or on e-readers and stuff and so it's hard for me to read like a lot of uh, content that way. So it's great to be able to listen to and also having your voice and the delivery, you know, makes it, you can really hear, hear it in your, in your voice, you know? Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. I mean, I, I'm, I'm one of those people who I prefer to read things, but when I'm reading a really long article, I can feel my attention wandering in a way that it wouldn't if it was in print. So I know what you mean. It is that sort of, well, I think we're so used to reading on paper that reading on, on, on a particular like a laptop screen just feels weird. Um, but I think, yeah, it's just that idea of at least making the content available in different formats. Because I know quite a lot of people actually listen to it on YouTube. So even though there's no visuals to go with it, mm. it's more accessible perhaps to listen to it on their TV on YouTube than it is to then go, oh, which podcast app am I going to use and how do I subscribe and blah, blah, blah it's quite easy to then just because most people know how to use YouTube. So it just, again, it just kind of removes that not barrier to entry, but just, you know, makes things a little bit less complicated for people who have already got so many other things going on in their life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I love bringing folklore kind of back to the fore because I feel like mythology and folklore, it's so important to cultures. And I feel like with the, the way that kind of, I mean, I, I'm from the U.S., and so I can shit on it, basically. <laughs> the way U.S., the U.S. has kind of, like, made everything this, like, monoculture. I didn't even realize how pervasive it was until uh, I moved to Sweden, and I thought, like, everybody here speaks English, and everybody here has watched the same movies, and it's, like, all this American stuff that I thought was kind of left over there. It's actually pervaded, like, lots of places, and I feel like it's so much nicer to hear more regional mythology, regional folklore, and like bring that back instead of this kind of like what Peter Gray calls the monoculture, the monoculture kind of flattening everything. Yeah, and I think it's really funny as well, because I mean, one of the things I love about folklore in particular is how when you start looking at it from lots of different places, you realize how it's actually there's quite a lot of stories that are really, really similar because mm-hmm. they'll be related to something that a lot of countries have had like, or you might have a particular type of ge- uh, geography or something like that so a lot of say the river folklore will be quite similar because most places have rivers um at least in in sort of Europe and then it kind of obviously changes depending on where you are in Europe and then obviously you get out more widely and obviously then you start to get different uh, cultures have different stories but then there'll still sometimes be like a common point where you're like yeah that's really similar and I always think that that's so lovely because it kind of shows how, to me anyway, humans are actually a lot more similar than I think a lot of people would would like to acknowledge or admit. So I sort of think that the, the common points between stories, particularly when the date from a time when there maybe wasn't much interaction, it, it sort of shows that there's obviously some kind of shared experience that we're just not paying attention to now. And I think that's where when you then find those common points it I think it's a really nice sort of of way of acknowledging that you know we're all part of the same species whereas the ones that have differences 
can also be interesting because they then tell you something about the time in which the story first emerged, but also the place. So you get very different stories, obviously, even just geographically. If you've got somewhere that's very flat and hot compared to somewhere that's cold and mountainous. And it's so I think the folktales tell us a lot that we don't necessarily acknowledge because people just go, oh, it's just a silly story. And you're like, yes, but that's how people used to pass on information. So what are we missing by just dismissing them as silly superstition? Mm-hmm. I mean, I had one guy got really, really irate on Twitter one day because I'd tweeted some medieval superstitious belief or something. And he was calling them childish because they didn't have access to the same scientific knowledge that we've got. And I'm like, well, what were you doing in the 14th century? You know what I mean? It was like, why, why are you dismissing them as being childish just because they've got what you consider primitive beliefs? But for the time, it makes perfect sense. So I think it uh, it's really valuable to have a look at, at folklore um, and legends and just basically how people have passed on beliefs and then encoded them in language. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope, I hope, I feel like it's the pendulum swung so far to like the scientific and like everything else being kind of dismissed. And I'm hoping now that we could go to a place where like everything's integrated, where there's like a place for everything. There's a place for like mythology and folklore and that kind of symbolic telling and metaphoric telling that, you know, something gets lost when you just break everything down to like purely the material or the rational or whatever. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I absolutely love science, massive fan of science. And I mean, like last night, for example, I was watching Professor Brian Cox has one of his astronomy series on, on, on BBC here in the UK. I was watching that. And, and what I find really fascinating is the sense of wonder that he demonstrates towards the cosmos. It's like, how is that any different mm-hmm. from the sense of wonder that you find in a lot of classical myths? And I don't. I actually don't think that folklore and science are incompatible mm-hmm. because, obviously, the only real difference is the fact that, you know, science follows a different process. But I think that you can have an interest in science, but also still find a value in folklore. But you've got to get out of that kind of binaristic, it's right or it's wrong thinking, because that's when people kind of go, oh, well, that's wrong, when they... Pliny the Elder comes out with something nonsensical, as he frequently does. And then you go, oh, Pliny, bless you. But then you kind of go, but at the same time, he was working with the information he had available, which is obviously going to be different from the information we now have available. So instead of looking at him going, oh, he's wrong, you can then be slightly more scientific and go, well, what does that tell us about the world he inhabited? Mm -hmm. And I think that's where, you know, it's a bit like when you meet people where they get really like, oh, I don't believe in anything spiritual or occult or anything because I I prefer science. And you sort of think, yes, but, you know, when you look at a lot of modern science, if you took that back to someone in the 1700s, they would think it was alchemy. So, you know, like, I I personally don't think that they're necessarily incompatible as long as you can see the, 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 the rigor and the process and the relying on evidence from... Uh, science is all really valuable I'm a big fan of uh, also listening to experts but then with folklore I kind of feel like it it's because of the fact you can then look at it for what it is and what you can take out of it and how you can interpret that I think it then becomes quite useful almost as a historical record 
Yeah, absolutely. That's beautifully put. But, and as Val Denham always says, you know, a lot of what people consider occult or supernatural is just something science hasn't explained yet, but there is some sort of explanation. We just don't understand everything. Well, yeah. And I mean, even like last night, Brian Cox is talking about dark matter. And I love the fact that scientists are like, we don't know what it is. We can't see it. We can't measure it. We just know that it's there. And you kind of think, well, let's be honest, Paracelsus was saying the same thing about the elemental beings when he was writing. So, you know, I I, I, I do think that there, there can be, you can have both of them in your worldview. Um, and because a lot of science, you can also look at it with a sense of wonder and, oh, how does that work? And it's almost magical in a way mm-hmm. because you don't fully understand how it works. It just does. And I mean, I remember I had an MRI scan on my shoulder once. And I remember I was lying in the scanner thinking, what was somebody trying to do when they invented the MRI scanner? And I don't know how it works. I, I vaguely have a rough idea, but, and I thought, so to me, this is no different from, you know, suddenly being presented with a new, a new invention sort of centuries past, but it, the difference is obviously I can ask someone or I can Google it, but ultimately, you know, th- this, this could potentially um, have some kind of folkloric beliefs about it if we were still that way inclined because it's something largely unexplained to the general public. And, you know, so I kind of feel like in a lot of cases, you know, people kind of almost hide behind um, science as a way of dismissing sort of the supernatural or the spiritual or the occult or whatever. But then other people hide behind the spiritual or the occult as a way of dismissing science. And I'm like, no, no, you can have both. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Maybe even it's not best to have both, have different uh, perspectives integrated. Well, exactly. And I think ultimately it's, because a lot of the the spirituality and occult stuff depends on personal experience. Yes, you may not have any evidence for that other than your personal experience, but that's equally valid as well. So, you know, everything started out ultimately as somebody's personal experience. It's just in science. Somebody's then gone out and tested that and, and found a paradigm for it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I just kind of wish that, that I think if anybody said that you can you can sort of change people's thinking on something I mean, obviously there's quite a lot of things I would change to be honest I could get rid of a lot of the, uh, the isms as it were um but one of them would be that you don't have to have this either or thinking you can have both and as well and that's where I think the you know it's possible to look at folklore and go oh my god I can't believe people used to believe these things and think but isn't it interesting that they did yeah like you said that sense of wonder yeah, and I think it, oh, in a way, it's sort of, it was really funny, actually, because uh, a, a little while ago, I thought, I'm going to ask people what brought them to folklore. And I can't remember why I wanted to do that. I, I think I was just being nosy, really. And I thought, you know, what brought other people to folklore? Because obviously, I know what my my origin story was, as it were. So I was curious what other people's were. And I got some really, really, really interesting responses back. And I actually ended up breaking them down in the six main areas, how scientific of me. And one of the things I found really interesting was the number of people who've gotten into folklore, either because uh, their family members used to pass it on and used to tell them the stories of like their local area or their cultural traditions or their heritage or whatever it might be. And then other people got into it because they were going to a new place and they wanted to better experience that place. 
So you then get sort of people going like, oh, you know, so I was going on holiday to this area and I, I heard a legend about sort of some some standing stones or whatever. And it really got me interested. So I, I read up a little bit more and I could experience the landscape very differently. And I thought it was really interesting how folklore then became this way for people to actually feel more rooted, both in the land in which they find themselves, but also... Um, within like a wider sense of human community and I thought so far from you know folklore sort of being again it's obviously some people use it in a divisive way and those people can just get in the bin as far as I'm concerned but the you can use it in a way to sort of like look at you know like shared experiences and so on uh, and also just as a way to pass on not necessarily historical fact but people's sentiment about something that's happened um and, and it is that way for people to feel a sense of connection both with each other and with wherever they are. Yeah, that's beautiful. I personally love, like, when I go to a new place, I love to try to find, well, always in a record store and an old bookstore, um, and trying to find, like, some sort of book of folk tales um, from that area. Yeah, because it's, it's nice, because often when you then look at those books, it then... It gives you the impetus to go out and actually find the things that are mentioned in the book. So you get to see perhaps different parts of where you are or you get to appreciate something that you would have otherwise just walked past. I mean, when I went to Germany a few years ago, now this would have been about 2013, I got a book of legends uh, from all along the Rhine. And they had a few things to see in Cologne. And we took a day trip to Cologne and we went and found a couple of statues, beautiful fountain. And like, obviously I was reading about these, these legends and I thought, well, if I hadn't bought these, this book, there's no way I would have just stumbled across these things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I might have done, but I wouldn't have known what I was looking at. And I think it then gave me a greater appreciation for where I was because I was like, you know, I now know what this fountain's for. I know what legend it commemorates. And then obviously when I got home, I could then look into it further. So I do think it's really interesting when you buy one of those books of like tales or legends or whatever, that you do then feel it. I don't know, I kind of feel like if you get to know the place a little bit better mm-hmm. because you're not just simply looking at what the tourist office have said is, is worth looking at. You're looking at what people have felt the need to preserve stories about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You get to know the character of the place more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I went to Venice and I bought a book of ghost tales and oh my God, this mm. amazing bookshop. It's so cool. And like all the books are kept in like gondolas and basins and things for if the shop floods. And if you love cats, it's like there's just cats everywhere as well, just to sleep on the piles of books. It's absolutely fantastic. And I found that they had this book and it was in like English, German and Italian, I think. So obviously I got the English one. And it was great because it meant that I could then, well, this possibly wasn't my brightest idea because I was then wandering around Venice at night, like following this book by myself, but it was fine. So and, I, and it meant that I could go and find these little architectural quirks and stuff that you wouldn't know were there. And it just meant I came home and I'm like, I found all this really cool stuff. And it was funny watching other people just walking past it like it wasn't even there. And I was like, oh, you're really missing out. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, Carl and I had a really, well, you know, you're part of the psychoanalysis art and called events at Morbid Anatomy, but we've also had a couple of conferences and the last like three day one we had was, um, in Murano, which is just like outside of Venice, uh, yeah. in the in the mountains there, and 
Um, now I want to go and get a book of Venice like folklore or myths and, and see because I did not I probably was one of those people that did not catch those things <laughs> well, it, it, I think it's one of those things where, like, when I think of all the places that I've been in the past and I've just never thought to to or I've possibly never had the chance to find like the legends or the folklore of the place and then I, I don't know it's, I, I've made it such a big thing um, now and obviously there's certain places like obviously me living in, in the UK, like we've got some really, really awesome sort of city-based folklore. Mm. And, but I don't need to buy a book about London folklore because like I know quite a lot of it already at this point. So I don't have to do it every time I go somewhere, but it um, it does kind of add a, a whole new layer uh, to a trip. And it also gives you the chance for some photos that aren't just going to be your typical tourist shots. So yes, I've got the, inevitable picture of the Rialto Bridge yes I've got the inevitable photo of St Mark's Square but I've also got all these other weird ones where I've got to kind of explain what the photo was of but it's then a little bit more interesting well in my view anyway yeah and I was just telling Carl this too because of course I have we haven't left Sweden for like over two years now and I'm getting even though I'm not going to travel um just going to keep staying put but uh getting like a little itchy to go somewhere and um I was telling him I went to uh Italy with my mom I don't know 2003 or so but over Christmas and I don't know if you've been in Italy over that time of year but they have witches everywhere like that was the last thing I was expecting we were like in Rome and you know you're at the Vatican you think oh it's just like the Catholic Mecca here but there's like witches hanging everywhere on their brooms and people have the stockings out the window but they're these like long striped socks with like pointed toes that are totally like witchy socks I'm like what is going on and they're like oh those are the Christmas witches they fly around and they put like you know oranges and candy and stuff in this in the people's stockings that are hanging out the window and I was like what <laughs> it's amazing yeah I was I absolutely love uh love this stuff about Bafana because I'm just like oh man I wish we had a Christmas witch that brought baked goods <laughs> and, um, yeah absolutely I, it, I think it's brilliant when you cut when you stumble across something like that and you're like I was not expecting that no um, <laughs> it's it, it's it's it, I don't know I just kind of again it's that sense of wonder and curiosity and it's just kind of oh wow isn't that cool and I think like even those moments are, are really uh really good opportunities to kind of you know exercise your curiosity a bit but also sort of learn more about the place where you are yeah and in general I feel like I'm trying to um consciously keep looking for things to be like amazed about people about because humans are clearly like really you know full of ingenuity and curiosity and creativity and I just feel like whatever current society we're in is like really put those things to like not great use but um I keep trying. There's so many things we could be upset about. And of course, those should be watched all the time. But I'm also trying to keep like um, being amazed at like how amazing we can be. Yeah, I think that's the thing, because it is really easy to, to to dwell on the negative stuff. I mean, this is the thing, right? This, this gives you an idea of the weird breadth of my interests. So my dad's an engineer, so I've naturally got an, an interest in engineering. And there was a program about the mega tomb that they built at Chernobyl over the reactor four. Oh, wow. And it was like there were teams from like the Netherlands and, and Great Britain and I think France and the Ukraine 
all working together to build this absolutely beautiful example of modern engineering. And it was just so wonderful watching all these people working together to get this thing done because it was quite important because it would cause problems if it didn't. And I was like, this to me is what humans do really well. Like when we work together and put aside all the daft, petty stuff and just kind of get on with the job in hand, we can do some really amazing things. It's like, look at the International Space Station. You know, it's fantastic the stuff that humans can do when they put their mind to it. And I always get really annoyed that that sort of gets forgotten about or or, or humans forget that we can do that. I I don't think it gets, I think we, we forget that in the face of all these divisions and stuff like that that ultimately you think well we're stronger together than we are apart so I always think it's you know and then to be honest like folklore usually backs this up like the one person who goes off on their own usually doesn't end well for them Mm. so it's uh, I kind of think it's a pity that we don't remember that and actually work together more absolutely and I also just had to tell you speaking of holiday witches that were unexpected um when when I came here to Sweden, they have Easter witches. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which I also wasn't expecting because the, the Halloween time, you know, from the States, it's this like kitschy thing. And then here it's more like, um, you know, all hallows and people go to the cemetery and they bring candles to the cemetery and they're really lit up. Like everybody does it. They're still really pagan in a lot of ways, which is really beautiful. Um, but everybody goes to the, the cemeteries and leaves candles for their for their ancestors and things and their loved ones. Um, and so it's more solemn around that time. But then in Easter, we were like on the bus in Stockholm and all of a sudden, like all this like gaggle of young like little girls came and they were all dressed as like, like not like witches with pointed hats and brooms type, but like, like hag witches with like little warts on their nose, and like little like bonnets and kind of rags. And I was like, what's going on? And Carl was like, oh, those are the Easter witches. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, that's what they do here in Easter. And that's when kids go and like get candy and go around uh, is during Easter. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. I think that's the thing I love as well about the fact that how something recognisable then becomes unfamiliar just because it's at a different time of year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the principle is still the same. Um, but oh, I love hearing about things like that. It's really interesting. Yeah, me too. It's really fun. Um, yeah, it's really fun. It's been fun to change change cultures and kind of see, uh, see my place of origin differently and... Um, yeah, open my mind a bit to other things. It's really nice. Well, I think that's one of the beautiful things about travel, though, the fact that you get to see both somewhere else. But like you say, you get a look back on where you're from as well, rather than just where you where you are or where you're going. And I think it can be quite uh, enlightening. Uh, it can also be quite, what's the word I'm looking for? Like I, I, I was just in Germany at the start of the week for this this trip with work. And it was so funny getting asked all these questions like, oh, is this really happening? We've read this in the paper. Is this really true? And I'm sitting there going, unfortunately, yes, it hasn't been exaggerated. And you end up sort of feeling a bit like, oh, you know, is that how we're perceived Mm. elsewhere? Like probably with good reason. And, you know, so I think it is quite, quite valuable to sort of, particularly when you're from, I think one of the, the Western countries, I think it is quite useful to kind of have that like, ego check periodically to be like, you know, yes, you know, you are no better than anyone else. You are just literally 
a human who happened to be born in a particular place. Um, and I think that's, that's also quite good just for general humility. Yeah, and I've been thinking about that a lot with regards to identity as well. It's like I've really realized like my identity, even though you feel so like attached to it, it's your identity, it's like uh, really it's just happenstance. It's like I just happen to be born to these people in this place at this time. And so I like these things, (laughs) et cetera. It's like really like a lot of it is uh, really circumstantial. Yeah, and I kind of feel like it is quite funny as well, like when because in my day job, I, I sort of I teach college age students, but I used to teach the slightly younger ones, like 16 to 18. And it used to be brilliant watching them like try on different identities to decide kind of which ones they wanted. Cause this was at an art school, so it wasn't quite as prescriptive. So obviously other places you kind of feel people sort of follow what everybody else is doing for that sense of acceptance. But these kids would be like, no, actually, I'm going to try this. Oh, no, I don't really like this after a couple of weeks. And then I'm going to try this instead. And oh, no, this one fits better. And I sort of thought it, that's that's one of the, the the few good things I think about being a teenager, the fact that you're allowed to do that. Whereas if you try and do that in your 30s, people look at you like, what are you doing? Um, so it is, uh, it is quite interesting, I think, how... Um, you do get the chance to sort of change things or adapt things. But then at the same time, it's hilarious when you then look at the likes of social media and like I, I, I was watching on Twitter, somebody was complaining, rightfully so, about the way that this like witchy aesthetic has become a thing on Instagram, mm. completely divorced from any kind of awareness of historical accuracy or anything. Um, and it's kind of like, it's always a little bit sad when when an identity then just basically becomes something to be bought and sold. Yeah, exactly. It's just some fashion trend. Mm. I mean, I think we've all we've all we've all been there. We've all done it, you know. Um, but yeah, it does it does make me wonder because when people then take their information from a, a TikTok video or uh, or something like that, it's it's sort of a bit frustrating because you're sitting there going, "Well, I know that's not true, but that person isn't going to go off and read a book about it. They're just going to take their information from what somebody on YouTube saying." So unless the person on YouTube has actually done some research, it's like it, it's amazing how much misinformation ends up spreading. Like, I'm so 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 sick of seeing that meme, and it came from a young adult novel, which makes it worse. But that whole like oh, we are the granddaughters of the witches you couldn't burn. And it's mm-hmm. just like, oh, really? Really? There's no historical accuracy to that whatsoever. And But, you know, the, the people who adopt that kind of identity just don't want to hear the historical accuracy behind it. So it, uh, it, it can be quite frustrating when you feel like you're combating, you know, decades of misinformation about something. Yeah, and I'm sure you've noticed too when when researching for your books and things. I, I noticed when I wrote this book on scansion and psychoanalysis, like psychoanalysis and art, um, I kept finding that like people, people, even the people researching writing books, like they'll find a quote in some book, and then everybody has um, referenced that book. But it's like, where did that book get that information? Then you go back to the original source that they're talking about, and I'm like well, that was really pulled out of context. And I don't think that's what this person was saying at all or something. And it's just like, then there ends up being like dozens of books quoting this book that just happened to like read something a certain way that actually might not have been accurate. (laughs) Exactly. And and this is the trouble because people don't always check their sources. um, 
I mean, I find this among a lot of the new age community. I mean, I was reading one book and I actually stopped reading it because it was it was pulling the same thing of, oh, you know, women were persecuted because they had knowledge as healers and nobody wanted women to have power. And I'm like, that's not what the witch trials were about, like, at all, you know. And But obviously they had read that in another book and, rather, and because the other book hadn't said where it got its information from, they hadn't then gone back and checked those sources. And it, I mean, basically it's a lack of academic rigor more than anything else, but then people believe the stuff that they've, they've heard um and then it can be very difficult to sort of try and redress those those kind of things I mean I know I I sort of have been guilty in the past of believing a thing because it, 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 it's what has been so often repeated you assume it must be true and then you actually look into it and go oh that's actually nonsense right <laughs> and 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 you've got to be bold enough, I think, to be able to go, yes, I used to believe that as well. But now I've actually done some research and found the truth is, or the reality rather, is this. But then you get to hold both in your head. So you can have the popular belief that people hold, but then the actual sort of reality as well. And again, it's that and, that either and, that you're like, I know that this one's wrong, but it's what a lot of people believe. And I know that this is actually closer to probably what really happened. But I think too many people kind of cling to the one or the other. Um, and, and that's where it sort of becomes a little bit tricky. Yeah, and also putting kind of a modern lens on something in the past. Like people say like, oh, this is, they're trying to do this or that. But it's from very much from like our framework but maybe they weren't thinking about it like that then like I saw this is a different example but I saw like an Edward Monk exhibit at the Monk Museum in Oslo and there was like a painting that he made of a girl who was like I don't know she looked probably around 13 or something she wasn't wearing a shirt she was just in her underwear in her room on the bed and the curator had like written this whole thing about like you know the abjection of like the pre- the like early teenage girl and like how she was feeling and how monk was like relating to that and all this and I'm like I don't think that's probably what he was doing <laughs> I was like that was a very seemed like a very um women and gender studies reading of a monk painting but I don't think that was probably what was going through his mind you know? <laughs> yeah that's the other thing as well you do, do get a lot of people trying to sort of project modern sensibilities backwards and I think that's really difficult when people start like applying like modern sort of gender studies and stuff to things like Greek myths. And you're like, but it's a completely different mindset. And that's, that's, it seems like a really like, yes, it can, it can obviously give you some really interesting alternative interpretations of something. But I think, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, um, a lot of people who don't necessarily um, act, it's not that they don't accept but it's more that they don't seem to realise that again you, without necessarily understanding the context that produced something you can't always automatically assume that you know like say the author's intention about something and and obviously I think with the more recent stuff I think you can because obviously they're closer to us in terms of sensibility therefore you can't and it's not to say that somebody with like really horrific views in like 1910 they're still really horrific views. But you just have to remember that while we think that they're really horrific and they are, 
at the time, some people will have understood them to be really horrific, but others won't. So again, you need to have that either and of being able to go, yes, these are really reprehensible views. However, this is the, the context in which they came out. So they're still wrong, but you then have to then also understand the context as well um, to get like a more a, a more in-depth view, I think, of, of what something is. And um, And I think that's where... Really, I think it would be very, very helpful if stuff like critical thinking skills were actually taught in schools. Um, but of course, what government wants their, 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 their young people to learn how to think for themselves, you know what I mean? Um, so I, 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 I kind of can't really see it happening anytime soon, but I, I, I do honestly think that something like that would really, really benefit people. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. And I think that uh, if people would just, I mean, yeah, if people would just come at things with like, it's totally great to have new perspectives on things in the past and just come at it from that angle instead of pretending that you know what Monk was thinking. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, it always makes me think of that meme where it's kind of like, um, like you know, an English teacher explaining a book and explaining like why the curtains are blue. And it's just because the author liked blue curtains. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and it always makes me think of that. Because obviously I've got to be really careful of that with film studies. That you can't be like, yeah, this is what they... I can't ever know what somebody's intention was unless there's a making-of feature where someone said, we did this to represent that. Um, so, I mean, this is one of the advantages of things like looking at cinematography because people have this, like there's a reason that you use a particular frame or a particular type of shot or particular camera movement. There's an established code for why you do that. So you can have a much better thing of, oh, they've used that shot for this purpose. So you can you can make a, a much closer interpretation because the visual language is there. And that's one of the reasons why I look at things like sort of sound and cinematography and set design, because there's like an established code around them. Whereas when you then start getting into things that, oh, I'm going to do a, a gender-based reading of the Silence of the Lambs, and it's kind of like, well, you know, considering how many people are involved in making a film, it's like, who are you actually aiming this at? Is it the script? Is it the acting? Is it the editing? Is it the actual directing? Like, which part of the film are you actually addressing with this particular, you know, sort of reading that you've got? So I, I, I do always find, yeah, that that kind of arty people possibly over analyzing things um can, can it can be really funny sometimes and other times you've got to be like make sure I don't do that as well <laughs> yeah and like as an analyst I can say maybe the person just had blue curtains in their childhood home you know <laughs> exactly yeah oh, well thank you so much for your time I do is there anything that we didn't get to that you'd like to mention or anything else you have coming up besides the morbid anatomy event um I think ultimately, like, because I'm, I'm I'm trying to take a, a little bit more, not time off, but take it a bit more easy as we come up to Christmas. So naturally, I've got another talk booked in in December. So um, I'm doing a talk on, um, it's for Crosswell Crags, which is like this prehistoric cave complex in Nottinghamshire. Wonderful. We're, we're looking at how, like, plants and trees and stuff um, are related to Christmas, like the folklore of them and how they kind of appear in the landscape and, and what some of the legends are about those. Um, so it's going to kind of have like a midwinter theme 
Um, and yeah, I'm basically just building up my Patreon content. So um, obviously for the people who actually pay me uh, to, to, to produce extra content for them, obviously it does then help me to continue with the main podcast because a lot of the time it's basically, you know, you've got to pay for all the backend nonsense, like podcast hosting and web hosting and things like that. But then it's also just paying for your time researching things because, you know, it can take a lot longer than you think sometimes, particularly if you know exactly which book you want, but you can't remember whereabouts in the book that particular thing appears. Mm. Um, so obviously at least they kind of help to pay for my time. So I'm sort of building up a nice little collection of, um, it's not little at all. Actually, I've got something like 25 bonus episodes available now. Wow. Um, so I'm building up a nice collection of, of content for them. And yeah, then just basically like winding down a bit for Christmas. Yeah, I'm trying to do that too. I was like, I'm not booking any more podcasts the rest of this year. Um, I think I have one more after a year and then that's it for me. I need to take a break because it does take up a lot of time and I love it, but I also like need to go to the gym or, you know, take a walk outside or really do anything else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I need to like live my life also. Yeah. <laughs> totally know what you mean. <laughs> Thank you so much, Icy. My pleasure. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Icy Sedgwick. For more, follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Icy Sedgwick. Check out her website, icysedgwick.com, and support her at Patreon patreon.com forward slash icy sedgwick you can visit my website drvanessasinclair.net or the podcast main website renderingunconscious.org for links and more information you can also follow me on twitter and instagram at rawsin underscore that's r-a-w-s-i-n underscore And join us on Sunday, November 21st for Icy's presentation at Morbid Anatomy Museum online as part of our Psychoanalysis Art and the Occult series live on Zoom at 2 o'clock New York City time on Sunday, November 21st. She will be presenting The Face of Fear, Faces in Gothic Horror Films alongside Dr. Casper Opstrup who will be presenting How Weird Is That? Looking at Weird Fiction. To register, visit the Morbid Anatomy events page at morbidanatomy.org events or visit Psychoanalysis Art and the Occult website psychartcult.org That's P-S-Y-C-H A-R-T-C-U-L-T dot org. And now, until we meet again, a collaboration I did with Nordvari from our album Inner Underworld, available at Bandcamp. Just visit Highbrow Low Life's Bandcamp page at highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. Enjoy.
yourself witchcraft, fantasy, libido, aggression, until we meet again. (laughs) 